Hi everyone, it's great to be with you at Rivercross. Uh, I can't wait to see you in person at some time soon, but uh, for now it's great to be with you virtually. And uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to bring greetings from Acadia Divinity College and to express our gratitude for all the support that you give us in so many ways um, that enables our mission to take place as we equip people to serve uh, the mission of God with transformative action as we prepare them for ministry in the church. And uh, it's a great privilege to do that on your behalf. So it's great to make this connection for you in the middle of the summer in this really interesting series. But before I get into the series I intend to tackle, I want to read a scripture first because this scripture is going to form the backdrop uh, for what I'm going to talk about as we go on. But I don't want to give all of that away. So for now, I'm just going to read for you Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And some of this will be very familiar to you. But let's play, pay some close attention, particularly to the second half of the scripture. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. As we thank God for his word, I'm also thankful for the invitation to speak on this creative series topic, if this Netflix series was a sermon series. And I'm going to look at the series called Afterlife. I haven't had a lot of time to watch TV until these recent months. Like many of you, I've watched this and that. I actually started Grey's Anatomy at the very beginning again and watched it the whole way through 16 seasons. And I also caught the series written, produced, and starred in by British comedian Ricky Gervais. In two seasons of six episodes each, Gervais is Tony Johnson, an average as average guy whose wife has just died and he has to figure out how to live without her and without any belief in God or an afterlife. There's the title of the show, Afterlife. The afterlife he has to live is the life void of the presence of the person he loved like no other, and it is a dark place. Tony's journey through grief is the journey of existentialism. It's the journey of figuring out how to war against or perhaps even embrace nihilism, that is, the meaninglessness of life, by getting out of bed each morning and not drinking himself to sleep every night. It is the journey of learning to keep going without any reason to keep going in the absurdity of life 
and to answer the ages-old existential question, why should I not kill myself? Well, for Tony, at least after two seasons, the question is never really answered. As an atheist, of course, in real life and in the show, he takes no comfort in the end of his wife's suffering because it was the beginning of his own. She has ceased to exist, but he must continue to live. But why? His pain is too great, and his sense of purpose or meaning or connection with life is tenuous. The first time he tries to take his own life, he's saved by the dog, remembering his promise to his wife to feed their pet and look after her. Each time he contemplates suicide, the dog is there, making a demand on him, bringing him back, except for the episode at the end of season two. This time, Tony's father has also died. His only other loving relationship has ended. He visited his father, who suffered with dementia, every day in the nursing home. And now this lifeline, too, is gone. Tony is ready to swallow a jar of sleeping pills. The dog is whining, barking, pleading with him to stop, but he continues on until a knock at the door brings him back to the present. With a promise of a new relationship of care, limited though it is. So there it is in a nutshell. The series has some very funny moments and some very tender ones, but my disclaimer here is a strong one. The language is offensive, some characters are genuinely vile, and it's not recommended viewing. However, the themes it touches on resonate with our contemporary culture, and the viewership is wide. As a critically acclaimed and award-winning series, I will save you the pain of watching it and cover some of the key lessons we can draw from it when we engage the series from a theological perspective. So if this Netflix series was a sermon series, like many good sermons, it would have three points and a poem. Well, I'll have three points, maybe no poem. First of all, be kind to people because you don't know what they're dealing with. Tony is full of pain of grief, and he takes it out on others. After his wife Lisa dies, he decides he's simply going to say whatever he wants, he's gonna do whatever he wants to anyone that he wants. He swears at people, he threatens a child with a hammer who was picking on his nephew, and he's generally a miserable, sweary geezer. It's clear, though, that he is in pain. The vile language and confrontational behavior are expressions of what he is feeling inside. And as he processes his grief, he comes to realize that so many of the people he judges carry their own pain, and he starts to reach out to them. This is the show at its best. Tony befriends a homeless drug abuser, a sex worker, a postman, and others, embracing all people simply as human. He doesn't judge them for their lifestyles. In fact, he helps the drug abuser obtain his wish to have enough money to buy enough drugs to kill himself. Uh, Tony gives him the money, the story unfolds, no judgment. We'll come back to that point later. But theological reflection on this point challenges us to remember that everyone has their story of pain. When they're sweary at us or they engage in a lifestyle that seems destructive, it's important to remember with Genesis that all people are created by God in the image of God. There's no one outside the scope of God's love and nobody who is not invited to meet Jesus. And that can help us not to react impulsively with anger when someone offends us or seems offensive in their being or cuts us off or treats us badly for no obvious reason. 
It can help us to welcome people we might have considered to be unclean when we recognize that nothing Jesus makes clean is unclean. Tony invites these people into his home and his life, not with just words or with any agenda, but for real and just because they're human. Ecclesiastes reminds us that in the rhythms of life, there is a time for joy and a time for pain. But having said that, the ethical challenge raised here is real nonetheless. And with that, we turn to the second major point. As the series goes on and Tony works out his grief, it's clear that Tony is a good guy, deep down. It reminds us that all people who bear the image of God, whether they call themselves Christian or not, bear the image of God. And Christians don't have the monopoly on love or caring concern for others. But the series goes a step further. The series boldly suggests that you don't have to be religious to have a sense of good and bad. And this is reinforced at various points. For example, confronted with a quasi-religious coworker who says, if you don't believe in God, you can do all the raping and murdering you want. I am doing all the raping and murdering I want, he replies to her shock. And then comes back with, I don't want to do any raping and murdering. Throughout the show, there are characters who are vile and offensive, selfish by any measure, contrasted with characters who are basically good, just trying to get through life like Tony. The challenge here is a moral one. It's not clear on what basis one judges between bad and good. If there is no God, why is treating a sex worker with respect better than visiting her for her services? Why not just continue to be vile? Why not keep threatening the bully kid with a hammer instead of buying him a bike? Why buy him a bike? And why do people keep telling Tony he's good? What is good? I do believe there is good in a guy like Tony. But it's good because God made us all with eternity in our hearts, with a thirst for what is right. And there are, of course, atheist takes on this. I know that. Some would say altruism in nature helps the species to survive. Others would say that misfires of kindness have provided leaps forward in human evolution. But I turn to C.S. Lewis, who converted from atheism to Christianity, in part because of this question. He found it hard to believe in God because of the evil he encountered in the world. It countered any evidence for God's existence, he believed. How could God allow there to be so much injustice, so much evil, and be a good God? There's surely no such thing as God. But then he started to think a bit more deeply. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, reflected on his own conversion from atheism to faith. He refused to believe in his younger years because the world seemed such an unjust mess. And maybe you think that too, with wars and death and pain everywhere. How could there possibly be a benevolent God? But Lewis then came to ask himself, what was I railing against when I said there couldn't be a God because the world was unjust? What gave me the idea that there was a way the world ought to be in the first place? Only theism could explain why he had a sense that there was a way that the world ought to be and yet wasn't. Lewis regained a sense of transcendence, of God, because he realized he had eternity in his heart. Why is it that I have a sense that there's a way the world should be, he asked. Why does that sense exist, and why is it offended when I see evil and injustice? Indeed, how can I even know what evil and injustice are, unless there's a standard by which to recognize and measure that reality? 
When evil happens, the question that often comes from atheists, where is your God now, is a question for the believer, not for the unbeliever. From a purely atheist perspective, there's no reason why the world should be one way and not another. There can be no value judgment to make on suffering and evil, let alone good and bad. It's only those who affirm a good God who would come up with such a question. Tony finds it easy to curse God, but never considers why he has a sense of good and bad to begin with. And near the end of season one, he says, when I was saying and doing anything I wanted, it felt best when it was also the right thing to do. <laughs> We're left hanging. How does anyone know what is the right thing to do? Feelings? Culture? Random acts? What people want you to do for them? Instinctive impulse? Bereft of a standard that can only be revealed by one who has the right to command, we are bereft of any standard at all. But the supreme law, the law of love, that's what Jesus lived and taught and invites our participation in. It's written on our hearts like a standard. How can we know a line is crooked if we don't know what a straight line looks like, asked Lewis. Tony's sense of goodness, far from impugning God's existence, instead suggests it. And this brings us finally to the issue of meaning. There's a woman in the series who sits on a bench at the graveyard where Tony visits Lisa's grave. She lost her husband and she understands Tony's grief. She acts as a sort of secular priest for Tony, offering him advice and a listening ear. But stop living for yourself, she tells him. If it's only about you, go ahead and kill yourself. Life is about others, helping them through, making others happy. Then you die. She encourages him to grasp this sense of meaning. Good people do good things for other people, and you're good. Spread happiness. Make your little corner of the world better. Meaning, for Tony, isn't found in the idea of a God-given afterlife. It's instead found in the temporality of things. The fact that things will end is what makes them meaningful. And Tony says, once you realize you won't be around forever, that's what makes life magical. This doesn't come from Tony originally, of course. The atheist philosopher Martin Hagland at Yale argues similarly, that because life is finite, it will end, it has value. There's no freedom, he says, in the persistence of eternity. He sees the idea of eternity almost like a prison. Only the temporality of life, the fact that it will end, for him, gives freedom and responsibility. For him, the idea of a real afterlife locks us down in the present, and we can't imagine anything other than the status quo, forever. But is this accurate? Is the meaning of life found in the brevity of life or in its eternity? Surely, from a biblical perspective, it's both. The author of Ecclesiastes talks about the time for everything, as well as telling us that we have eternity in our hearts. That is, we have a sense of time, the time that we inhabit and something bigger than ourselves that we cannot see the whole of, let alone control. That time stretches backwards and forwards, and we have a place in it no matter how brief. We have an innate sense of justice that we look at the world and think there's the way it's supposed to be and isn't. That's part of eternity in our hearts. It makes us want to do something about it. 
Once I read uh, the book Sapiens by Hanari. It's a history of the entirety of humanity, and it's pretty humbling. If you ever want to feel small and insignificant as a human being and then lament about meaninglessness with the author of Ecclesiastes, read Sapiens. It's a fascinating account. But Hanari's account of religion and humanity is particularly unsatisfying because, again, it lacks a transcendent element, an element that there's more than what we see. He captures a sense of the beginning and the end of humanity, but there's, even within that, no apex of history that enables humanity to get outside of ourselves, to respond to that endless lament of meaninglessness. Reading Hanari, it's easy to be fascinated and yet still wonder, is that all there is? The author of Ecclesiastes has a very simple response. You see, the author has a sense that there should be meaning somewhere. As he cries out from the beginning onward, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. He sees that there should be meaning somewhere in the midst of that. In the order that he found within nature, he realized that somebody held time. There's a beginning and an end. And even though we couldn't grasp it, we could trust God, love God, simply enjoy our food, enjoy our drink and our work, and that's it. Sometimes that is enough meaning. When you look back at your life, what is most meaningful? We've had time to think about that in recent months. Friendships, family, love, service. Yes, we enjoyed success and bursting out into the world to make our mark, but at the end of the day, meaning is found in the little things, and the little things become the big things. The author of Ecclesiastes understood that. But what the author of Ecclesiastes did not know, could not know, as he reflected on the end of it all, is that there is something other than the relentless trek towards death. Later in the book, he, uh, this is a quote from, uh, from him in the sense again of, of, a, of meaningless that keeps coming back. The relentless trek towards death when no pleasure is taken in life anymore, when the strong men are bent and the women who grind cease to grind because they are few and the doors on the street are shut and the daughters of the song are brought low, there are fears of heights and dread of terrors in the road. The grasshopper drags himself along and the mourners go about the streets and breath returns to God who gave it. Meaningless still. Unlike the author of Ecclesiastes, we do know there's something more. The very God who holds time entered time. He met his creation in the midst of our oppression and our injustice, and our meaninglessness. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he entered our relentless trek towards death and submitted to its demands on his flesh. He provided an apex in history that allows us to imagine a beginning and an end as well as our place within it. He disrupted our sense of time and gave meaning to life today and life after life in ways that are far from static, but are transformative. Our worldview can lead us to believe and behave as though it all means nothing. In response, humanists say, carpe diem, seize the day, YOLO, do whatever you like because you're only here for a fleeting moment. Or 
Our worldview can lead us to value our experiences of love and beauty and to see in them meaning beyond the moment, beyond here and now, as a window to eternity. To put it simply and starkly, there are two affirmations about what it means to be human. One, we will die. Two, we know that we will die. And these affirmations of the theologian cause us anxiety. We know there's nothing to do to stop the creeping process of age and death, and yet we also know that our minds and our hearts are caught up in eternity, a sense that through our creativity and love, we're so much more than a physical body. We are a soul, a spirit. We long for eternity beyond the certainty of death of the body in this world. And yet we live this world with a commitment that what we do today echoes into eternity. In his search for meaning, the character Tony says, love what you love with passion. Though again, it doesn't seem to matter to him what you love. For a Christian, it does matter. Loving others, for example, yields a very different outcome than loving yourself. Loving a God you believe to be loving yields a different outcome from loving a God who is spiteful and vengeful. But this distinction is not recognized in the show, and so the moral randomness reappears, along with skepticism. Being healthy is just dying more slowly, he says, and the world is a horrible place. The realism of the pain of grief and loss and the daily grind against nihilism, the idea that nothing means anything, constantly renders these sort of optimistic platitudes meaningless themselves. And even Tony doesn't really believe them. The author and former atheist, Ian Wilson, found through his experience of the world, in particular through losing people that he loved, that purely material explanations for our existence are insufficient. Language, love, and music led him to conclude that human beings are more than meat here on the earth by accident. He became convinced from the evidence that we are, quote, spiritual beings and that the religion of the incarnation asserting that God made humanity in his image and continually restores humanity in his image is simply true. Wilson found new hope in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who ends the cycle of life and death with an affirmation of love and life. To know we are loved by God, and so to love him and others, in return, lies at the heart of life's meaning. Ultimately, we cannot say that we hold the meaning of life, or that we can exhaust life of its meaning through our understanding. But we can be confident that the meaning of life holds us. The holder of time broke into time entered the world that he loved, gave us a taste of eternity, and carries us in this life and into the next. The fact that the meaning of life holds us is as good a place to start or finish as any. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you hold time. The beginning and the end and all of the in-betweens that you wrote eternity on our hearts. Give us a sense of the meaning you have for us in our lives. Be with those who grieve, 
who are longing after lost loved ones. Give them a sense of your care and your love and the love and care of your people. Give us patience for one another. Help us to see everything we touch as dripping with meaning because you are part of it. God, we pray that you will teach us to reflect well on the culture that we engage, that we be able to witness well to the powerful, transformative life of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we seek your blessing this day. Amen.